my favorite character was always Batman. As a little kid, I wore the costume, so I, I, I'm a bit of a fanatic. And when people merge the area of intellectual curiosity with the law in general, with the fascination of Hollywood movies, particularly as lawyers, we love to analyze this stuff and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the way it would really work. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very warm and sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is off today. So before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Today we're going to be covering a fun topic, just in time for the International Comic Con Convention next month in San Diego. It's a legal investigation covering the end of Dark Knight Rises, the latest Batman movie released last year. And here I should warn you, if you haven't seen it, there are spoilers ahead. So if you didn't see the movie and you don't want to hear the spoilers, stop listening now. Well, now that everyone who has seen it that wanted to is headed to Redbox and Netflix, it's no surprise to you that Batman dies at the end of the film. But the question to us lawyers is, are both Batman and Bruce Wayne legally dead? And if New York Law, where the Batman series is set, applies to fictional characters, does the story follow the requirements set down to be declared dead? Well, today we're going to be talking with two attorneys who will be able to bring unique insight into the legalities behind Batman's death. First, we have James Daly. He's the co-author of the book, The Law of Superheroes, and he writes the blog, Law and Multiverse. Both his book and his blog discuss the hypothetical legal ramifications behind comic book tropes, characters, and powers. When James isn't meticulously analyzing the law of comic books and characters, He works as an intellectual property and patent lawyer. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Our second guest today will be a good friend of mine, Michael Barony. Michael is an entertainment lawyer who currently serves as general counsel and secretary for Palace Entertainment, the world's third largest amusement park company with over 40 amusement theme, animal, water, and family entertainment parks across the United States. He's also on the board of directors for the Orange County Bar Association. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Craig. Good to be here. All right, James, let's ask the first question. So what does this really mean? At the end of the film, the entire city of Gotham sees Batman die, so that's relatively easy. But does that also mean that Bruce Wayne is dead as well? Uh, well, uh, I think so. Uh, I think in the sense that he can be uh, declared dead uh, legally. Um, we don't actually know precisely where Gotham is located. Um, it's just like in the comic books, it's never stated explicitly what state it's in. Um, usually when we write about Batman stories, we like to use New York because Gotham is is kind of um, uh, a stand-in for New York City in a lot of ways, architecturally and and everything. And so also New York law is pretty easy to research uh, because there's a lot of cases and good uh, books and CLE materials and all that kind of thing that are written about it. So it's easy for us to look up these kind of um, uh, somewhat more obscure questions. Um, So uh, uh, this this question actually came about... uh, and as a guest post on our on our blog, I should give credit where it's due from a, a fellow named uh, Mike Lee, and he had uh, come up with his own analysis for the subject, and he'd written me asking, you know, what did I think? And it turned out that uh, his analysis was exactly 
what uh, what I would would come up with myself, and so uh, we uh, we ran it as a guest post. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the the basic answer is that yes, I think that uh, Bruce Wayne could be declared legally dead under the 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 New York the New York standard. Well, Michael, it's fairly common in movies and comic books to bring people back from the dead. Do you think Bruce Wayne or Batman can be resurrected, and how would that work legally? Well, first I want to say my favorite character was always Batman. As a little kid, I wore the costume, so I'm a bit of a fanatic. And being a New York City native, I do have to agree with James that Gotham is New York City, right? So if you look in one of the clips, I remember saying uh, building 957 Fifth Avenue. Um, I remember that. That's right on 77th and 5th. So we're definitely talking New York law here, right? And as you point out, Craig, one of the great things about film is that people die all the time. And wonderful scribes always find a way to resurrect them and, and bring them back into it. And, you know, what's interesting here, of course, is you don't have the, the death of one character. You've got Batman supposedly dying, although no one really actually saw the body getting blown up at the end. But then you've also got his alter ego, Bruce Wayne, and Bruce Wayne disappears. And what's really intriguing to me about that is I thought nobody really knew who Batman was, except for a few people. So how come Batman dies and then everybody in the city all automatically assumes, well, Bruce Wayne must be dead too? In the comic book world, there are only four people who know that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Exactly, right? So I think we have Alfred. We've got the commissioner. Um, we've got uh, Lucius Fox, right? And, uh, of course, uh, whoever may be Robin at the time. So you have to wonder because they immediately jump into, you know, talking about his will and, and what he's leaving people. Um, however, who knew that Bruce Wayne was Batman in the larger sense? The only thing you can really figure is that with all the mayhem that was going on and Gotham being completely taken over and overrun by the criminals and all the bad guys, and they were specifically targeting all the wealthy people in New York, so or Gotham City, right? So maybe the assumption is, well, he's not around anymore, so therefore he must have been killed by all these rogue criminals. James, Bane is Batman's enemy in this movie, and do we actually know that is Batman that died? Could there have been a switch? Could Bane be playing a part? Uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think... Uh... Uh, I don't. I don't think that people knew. I, th- I think that. Uh, I think that. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, that. Uh, that I think that people came came to the conclusion that because of the the, uh, the, the mayhem that was going on, that uh, that he must have been a a target of the uh, or a casualty of the same. This is the broader uh, rioting and and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and as it turns out, that's that's precisely one of the categories under which somebody can be uh, declared dead. You put some information on your blog about the specifics of New York law regarding death, James. What are the categories that allow someone to be declared dead? One of them, I believe, is if you're absent for a certain period of time. Right. Um, so under common law, there was a, being a period of absence of seven years, um, and New York reduced that by statute to three. Uh, but um, if there's been exposure to a specific peril of death, then the person could be declared dead even if that three years hasn't uh, happened. Uh, now, clearly, three years had not gone by between the time of the sort of end of the movie and the denouement with the, the you know the reading of the will and all that kind of thing. Some time had passed, but I don't think it had been three years. 
So uh, I think that they have to have resorted to the specific peril of death uh, approach. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's a very good argument for the, uh, the fact that Bruce Wayne belonged to this, you know, endangered class of wealthy people during uh, the, the Bain's occupation. I think there's a very good argument that that would, uh, that would qualify. And in particular, there's an interesting uh, uh, New York case in Ray Podkowicz's estate uh, where there was a, a, a New York uh, court uh, allowed a, uh, finding a presumptive death uh, under the common law standard, not under the statutory standard, but the common law uh, civic peril standard, because uh, the, the deceased in that case uh, had been uh, uh, a, a Jewish uh, person living in uh, Lithuania uh, in uh, 1939 and hadn't been uh, heard of since the Nazi occupation of that country. And so they held it well. It was pretty well known uh, what the Nazis were doing in Lithuania at that time, uh, and that, uh, that pretty well qualifies as a specific peril. And uh, while what Bain did in Gotham did not quite rise to that scale, it's, you know, broadly comparable in the sense that there was a identifiable group of people who were being targeted for, for, uh, for being killed and, uh, and, and Wayne belonged to that group. Michael, you brought up the fact that only a limited number of people know that Batman was Bruce Wayne, but for them to declare Batman as legally dead, they also have to declare Bruce Wayne as legally dead. How does that work in the sense of the parallel universes of those two? Yeah, and I think the only way you do that is through firsthand uh, testimony and declarations of people <laughs> being submitted to the court. And are those four people going to do it? I don't think so. And what's interesting is that, you know, one, they wouldn't want to put on the record that Bruce Wayne is really Batman. But two, I think given Batman's history of phenomenal escapes and uh, being the super crime fighter that he is, I don't know if everyone would would so automatically just accept the fact that he must be dead. Um, they didn't see him enter a plane and a second later the thing blew up. They saw him enter a plane, some of them maybe, and they saw the bat plane fly off into the ocean at a pretty incredible distance. I think um, they said it, it had something like a 60-mile clearance or whatever it was. So he flies off into the ocean and the plane presumably blows up with the bomb attached. However, no one really saw him go down. And uh, given that this guy's, uh, you know, a pretty slippery guy to, to catch and kill, you know, you would think more people would uh, be a little bit dubious about the fact that he might be dead at all. And indeed, if, if as the movie hints, uh, if his uh, successor, uh, apparent successor, decides to, um, decides to take up the job as Batman rather than as a different um, sort of uh, alter ego or a different, uh, you know, costumes. Uh, persona, then it could very well be that people go on believing that somehow he escaped death. James, what? How would that work? Would some is someone else able to come in and take over the Batman character? Someone other than Bruce Wayne? Is that even possible? Well, it's been done during the Nightfall storyline in the early '90s, which the Christopher Nolan movies definitely took from. I mean, that's where that's one of the main Bane storylines, and the. Uh, uh, it's definitely uh, where the Dark Knight Rises takes a, a good chunk of its um, inspiration from. Uh, uh, after Batman uh, has his back broken by Bane uh, in that comic book storyline, uh, while he's off seeking medical treatment, um, 
uh, a different uh, person uh, takes over as Batman for a while uh, in order to, you know, give people the impression that, uh, you know, that Batman hasn't forsaken the city or whatever. Uh, eventually, uh, Batman comes back and has to take, take, retake his place, partly because the, the stand-in Batman had gotten a little violent uh, and uh, overreaching. But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's some precedent for that in the comics, and I think that maybe that's what they were hinting at a bit in the movie. I don't okay. think there'll be a fourth movie, but... I say, you know, in the Hollywood sense, of course, we're, we're very used to seeing multiple people playing Batman. And I think, you know, if you absorb the comic books and all the, the history of the movies, you kind of get this overriding theme that being Batman is more than just whoever the man is in the suit. You know, it's kind of this, you know, powerful theme and, and symbolism, particularly with the, you know, the Bat logo. So I think, you know, we're we're all kind of, prepared that somebody else could step into that suit. But the, the interesting thing is, you know, legally what happens then, right? Do they, do they unwind the Bruce Wayne, you know, estate distribution? Yeah. And, and Michael, do you ever get these kind of questions from, or James, do you ever get these questions from uh, people? Do, do uh, are people that wrapped up in, in Batman and comic books that uh, they're concerned about the legalities of, of what's actually happening? Oh yeah. Uh, after we, I started the blog uh, in November of 2010, and um, pretty pretty rapidly, uh, after just about maybe six months or so, most of the post ideas on the blog started coming from questions from readers rather than from stuff that uh, I or my co-author would come up with on our own. Uh, we get a pretty steady stream of, of of people saying, you know, what about what about this? Uh, this movie, uh, you know, or have you read this issue uh, of this, you know, fairly obscure comic book from the seventies or, or whatever. Uh, and uh, they, they want to know. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we get lots of, uh, lots of the questions about the kind of thing. People, people are really, people are really interested. I agree. I think this is great, you know, lawyer event cocktail party talk too, because <laughs> when people kind of merge the area of intellectual curiosity with the law in general, with the fascination of Hollywood movies, Particularly as lawyers, we love to analyze this stuff and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, that's not the way it would really work, you know, in the real world legally. And a lot of things we know that, okay, they've got to, you know, condense, you know, uh, a trial, for instance, because you can't drag a TV show about a legal issue, you know, that should take three years in, into, you know, a few days, for instance. And we, we all kind of accept that. But the more fascinating questions, you know, arise like this, you know, well, is Batman really dead? And, you know, What's funny is I, I know some people suggested, well, maybe the ending is really just kind of a wild hallucination by Alfred or something, you know, <laughs> but nothing, <laughs> right. nothing really evidences that. Right. I mean, right. if Alfred was walking down the Sun River and saying, you know, killer orcas or something jumping in and out of the water, I might say, OK, the, the old man's gone batty. Right. But <laughs> he's sitting at a cafe and oops, you know, there's Bruce Wayne right. and even the commissioner. Right. Finding the, the repaired, you know, bat light. Um, you know, certainly it doesn't look like he did it because he kind of looks at it and touches it and looks around the scenery and takes it in and realizes, hey, maybe Batman's still out there. Well, this has been really fun for a moment. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. 
Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, and if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. We were talking before the break about the questions that people ask, uh, kind of the cocktail-style questions that uh, get asked of lawyers regarding fictional characters. Is there any law that really relates to fictional characters? James, is there anything out there that, that uh, sets a standard that we should be following or the Hollywood should be following for fictional characters? In terms of an example of a, of a, of a comic book or a movie that really got it right, that did, right. A, good, that did, did a good job? Exactly. One of my favorite examples is, um, is the comic book series Daredevil, uh, which features uh, Daredevil as a is a character who uh, is an attorney. <clears throat> his his uh, secret identity is an attorney, Matt Murdock. And uh, so necessarily the writers often uh, feature stories that involve his, uh, his, his day job. And uh, so over the years, some have done a better job of uh, have handling that aspect than others. The current writer, uh, Mark Wade, uh, does, I think, a, actually a uh, quite good job of, uh, of handling those issues. And uh, on more than one occasion, there's been something that's come up that I've thought, oh, gosh, you know, no way that's, uh, that's you know, legally accurate. Surely that's going to be a problem. But it's actually, if once I delved into it, um, it turned out that while maybe um, ethically shaky <laughs> or maybe not necessarily the best idea, um, it is perhaps permissible if done, you know, if done carefully, you know, with all the right, uh, you know, written uh, informed consent disclosures and all that kind of thing. Uh, for example, there was a, there was an example where the, uh, he rep the attorney represented an inventor in a case in exchange for, uh, as compensation, uh, it was a, it was a patent case, uh, patent litigation case. And in exchange, uh, he would, he would, the firm would get 10% of the profit on the invention. And, uh, this seemed like a very, to me, like a very questionable combination of a contingent fee and a business transaction with a client, um, but it turns out that in New York, where the uh, where the uh, where the Daredevil stories are, are explicitly set, um, this is something that can be done um, uh, with if you comply with both of those uh, rules simultaneously, which requires you know a lot of informed written informed consent, but you know it can can theoretically be done. Um, so uh, you know, things like that. Um, uh, and then, and then another Daredevil story that Wade didn't write. Uh, this is from a few years ago. It is set in uh, Alabama, called Daredevil Redemption, and it's really remarkable because uh, it, was, it was written by David Hine. And it's remarkable because it doesn't feature any other 
superheroes or supervillains, and really he doesn't feature any superpowers to speak of or anything. And it's really basically just all about Matt Murdock handling a murder trial in Alabama. And um, the, the legal aspects of it are handled really very well. There's only a, small, a couple of small quibbles that I would give it. And uh, I would say that anybody who wants to read a, uh, uh, a comic book story that uh, is really pretty tightly focused on uh, a trial from start to finish uh, uh, would, would do well to uh, check it out. Sounds like excellent reading. Michael, let's talk a little bit about Batman or, or Bruce Wayne's will. There's been some mention of it being read and looking at it. Who owns Batman's cars? We, we always assume that the Batcave is beneath Wayne Manor or somewhere nearby, but uh, there's nearly, I don't know that there's been any kind of anything established about ownership. So if, if Bruce Wayne is declared dead and we start giving away his belongings, what happens to all the, the, to the Batcave and all the cool gizmos and gadgets? I know it's true because a lot of the stuff he wants to keep hidden. So would he really put all of these things in the Bruce Wayne name? He's got the Wayne Foundation, charitable, and he's got Wayne Enterprises, right? All the companies that are supposedly making money. But exactly, who actually has title this stuff? What's interesting is Batman's not the guy who invents most of those cool gadgets, right? It's a Lucius Fox. So, you know, you got to wonder who owns the patent rights to it. The Lucius Fox, and does he just kind of license them for, you know, nominal or no fee to Batman? Right? And, and Lucius works for Wayne Enterprises, right? Right. So we, we would assume it's all work for hire. You know, you got to be careful with patentable inventions. I mean, supposedly, if, if that's out in the open and that's his official job for Wayne Enterprises, then you'd say absolutely, you know, that, that gets automatically uh, vested into Wayne Enterprises. But again, as you're pointing out, you know, the deed to the property, the Batcave, you know, um, presumably that might be a property without any legal record to it. Um, certainly Wayne Manor, you know, they say it's deeded out uh, to the city and the land so they can use it. Um, for charitable purposes for orphans in the city. And the funny thing was, you know, they say, okay, all the residue of the state all goes to Alfred, but supposedly Bruce Twain lost all his money in the stock market when they, <laughs> they, they purposely stole his identity and, and, you know, crashed his entire fortune. So you had to wonder, what did Alfred get, if anything, on top of it? James, what's your sense of, of ownership issues and, and uh, how these patents might work on the, these wonderful inventions? I mean, I, I seriously am interested in getting a hold of that motorcycle. <laughs> well, I think that a, a, one of the first things I wrote about on the blog, and I think it's a serious issue for, uh, for, for Batman, that when he uses an invention that came out of Wayne Enterprises R&D, is that he's now uh, engaged in a public use of that uh, invention, which means he's, uh, if, if that's something that's potentially patentable and has not yet had a patent application filed for it, he's just started... Uh, well, under the old patent law, he had just started a one-year clock ticking on uh, on getting a patent application filed or else potentially invalidating any future uh, patent on it as because his public use could be considered prior art uh, against, uh, against any patent on it. And under the new patent law, the American Invents Act, uh, could potentially uh, uh, immediately inval- uh, invalidate it. Um, uh, it gets a little more complicated than that. And, we probably don't want to go into all the details, but the point is, is that uh, Batman's public use of these uh, inventions could be a big problem, and uh, some of some of the, his use probably pretty difficult to prove uh, because, for example, if he's wearing some body armor that came out of uh, Wayne Enterprises, pretty difficult to prove that he was wearing 
you know, body armor made of a certain material. But if he decides to throw batarangs around that are made of some cool alloy or, or shaped a certain way, and one of them ends up being left behind at the scene because it's buried in the wall or buried inside a bad guy, <laughs> um, uh, then that, and that gets found, then, hey, that's, you know, that's be evidence in a, in a uh, civil case. Um, so, uh, uh, or if it's something that can be, uh, you know, can be, if it's evidence that can be, um, just seen well enough on a, you know, surveillance camera or whatever, whatever. Well, gentlemen, we've, we, we've just about reached the end of our program and it's time to wrap up with your closing thoughts and your contact information. So Michael, I'm going to hand it over to you and let you wrap up with a conclusion here and, and give our listeners a means to reach out to you if they want to ask some further questions. Sure. My final thought has to be on intellectual property, trademark, who owns the Batman logo, copyright. Can his costume you know, be sufficiently declared unique and theatrical enough to garner copyright protection? I'd be interested to know that. So my name is Michael Barony at Palace Entertainment. My email is mbarony, B-A-R-O-N-I, at palaceentertainment.com. Great. And James? Well, my name is James Daly, and you can find uh, all my contact information, Twitter, Facebook, and the like at uh, my website, lawandthemultiverse.com. Great. And your final thoughts? Well, my final thoughts are that uh, I think there are a tremendous host of issues, and I think that uh, comic books are a wonderful way to think about these kinds of things because they are the perfect kind of hypothetical because there are so many different versions of all these heroes that uh, you can always think of a new angle on any one of these, uh, any one of these questions. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. And we've now reached the point of the program where Bob and I typically give our, our closing thoughts. It's a new addition to our show where we each get 30 seconds to share our final thoughts before a buzzer goes off. And since Bob's not here, I'll start with mine. Um, I, I agree with Michael. It is a very interesting, uh, situation about whether or not these, these, uh, inventions are patentable, whether or not they're copyrightable and can be trademarked. And I wonder if the uh, movie owners have gone to the point where they have actually uh, gone out and sought patents for some of the um, inventions that, uh, that Alfred and, and Lucius Fox have, have featured over the years. And uh, I think it would be interesting from some of our listeners if someone actually went out and, and investigated that and, and uh, let us know and find out if whether or not these things are, are, can be done or have been done. Anyway, that's it. I just got buzzed. and. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. We'll be back again next week for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.